0: Super busy. We've been um we're we're preparing to do some modest scaling, basically um, of of all the stuff around teams properties and fast flow and, and this kind of thing. So it's 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 quite an exciting time, but there's an awful lot of stuff to do, basically. Modest scaling. What does that uh going? It depends how you count it right now. But going from a team of let's say eight ish people, depending on how you count it, to well to twice that by the end of this year and then twice that again by the end of 2024 and then we'll see nice so yeah smallish numbers we're not talking about hundreds or thousands of people but um definitely in terms of kind of ambition and customer success stories and things like that so um it's 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 cool it's good it's it feels like the right time to, well to be honest it's the right time to do that was actually about two years ago but um, for various reasons
1: we didn't do it right um but anyway so this is the next best time to do it of um because i know you um obviously released the book and things like that teen apologies. is it like more like the validation of like what you've created inside of things and that's why now you've reached a stage where you're like okay now you're kind of seeing it in action
0: to some extent the book teen Apologies was the right book at the right time because there's lots of the ideas floating around in terms of size of team, in terms of socio-technical systems, in terms of Conway's law, and a bunch of these other things, um, so someone else could have come along with a book that was had similar themes and had some some success. I think what we did is to is to augment it with language, quite specific language uh, that was carefully chosen, and uh, other concepts like team interaction modes. So I think it's fair to say it's the first approach to thinking about teams working together building software or just teams working to in, in together in general really that thinks about the interactions between teams rather than just the types of team what they do right because into if you think about and specify interactions and use that as a an enabling constraint on a on a complex adaptive system which is what we're talking about when we're talking about an organization with multiple actors and that kind of thing so you've got some constraints on the language constraints on 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 the kind of effectively the operating model that you might adopt in this context Um, then what starts to happen is that we get some interesting more predictability in the behavior that emerges and so this um, so we're able to maybe reason a bit better or have more structured conversations about how we might want to run things in the organization that ends up being quite quite powerful and quite um, a real catalyst Mm -hmm. for helping organizations to work in in a much better way But it's really counter, not counterintuitive, it's really unfamiliar to lots of, lots of people. Lots of people are familiar with thinking about managing stuff. Let's manage all the things, right? Rather than how can we set things up so we don't need to manage them. And lots of people are familiar with thinking about the organization like a machine. How can we make this better? How can we specify things better? How can we oil the machine better? How can we get people like squeeze more, more work out of them, more typing out of them, all this nonsense. And so, so helping people to see things in a different way, helping to see things in terms of an ecosystem, in terms of shaping behaviors and, and, and con- de- deliberately constraining the ways in which teams work together in order to become more effective, turns out to be quite a radical approach, basically, even though it's like, it's kind of obvious to those of us who have been working in this space for quite a while and, and in other organizations too, other spaces too. Um but particularly those of us who kind of understand software and APIs and, and, and this kind of thing, abstractions and flow and blah, 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 it's all relatively obvious, but to people who are, who are not familiar with this stuff, it is
1: quite new. Mm. I'm really intrigued because the, the, the team topologies, um, just for me to kind of understand fully, is it, cause it's like, seems like a mixture of kind of like, um. Sociology constructs, right? Behavioral constructs in like, like, like kind of what you're saying. So almost like got a sociology lens to it on like, how do we kind of function as a as a, as a mini society, which is kind of like the organization, like at a micro level. Um, and then obviously the psychology behavioral elements of individuals within each team and the constraints, which is kind of like, like how do you get affected people and productive people? but whether that applies to sizes of businesses because i guess if you're tiny would the would team topologies be be useful to like only certain companies of certain sizes do you think or is it like a generic like you could be just a delivery team like a small delivery team and it and it's not specific
0: so what we found is that actually um uh so we did. Some, I did some work with with a customer way back in like 2015, and they were a startup in the video advertising space in the UK. Because uh, apparently, prior to 2015, adverts for television, at least in the UK, were burned onto a DVD and put on a motorcycle courier and sent across London from one studio to another. 2015. This is like well after uh, AWS and uh, cloud I did not and all that. But this is a, so is mean Kind of it seems mad, but anyway, that's that's what happened. Um, it's partly the size of the 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 assets and everything It's very expensive and didn't have ubiquitous fiber and all that kind of stuff back in 2015. Anyway so that's what the startup was doing was actually taking video uh, tv advertising and um, running it through processing and blah 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 uh, review cycles and then making it available on the internet and it it seems kind of obvious these days but it's only a few years ago. Um, Anyway and they got they they got to about 15 people in size and started to see some of the problems that we talk about in the team's bodies book because the TT book is based on stuff that we've, problem partly based on problems that we've seen. And and that was, that was, that was, that influenced some of the, some of the language and thinking like particularly uh, the influence of tools on behavior of teams. Like if you've got a group of people who don't have access to a particular tool or only have read only access rather than edit access and this kind of thing, then it, it, you know, it can have a really strong effect on how, on how they've, how behavior of that organization starts to emerge and in this particular case it was around kind of the, what is a platform it was around kind of how much cognitive load can we reasonably expect the front-end development teams to take on do they really need to know about the inner workings of the video processing uh, software which a is complicated anyway because mm-hmm. it's doing mp4 whatever it wasn't even just mp4 it was other kind of transcoding stuff as well um but like the way in which that, mach- that 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 particular software was configured was really awkward because it was running on a Windows machine, but they were running it inside AWS in on, on in a Linuxy kind of environment, and blah blah blah, like all of this kind of stuff. And we're thinking, there's a cognitive load thing going on here. We didn't call it to call it that at the time, but we started thinking through. Well, what's the mental effort, if you like, that these people need to go under, and uh, is that reasonable? Is that the right thing for them to have to think about? Or, uh, Surely they should be more focused on kind of the user experience of the video editing workflow and blah blah blah, or video approval workflow it was in this case. Anyway, this kind of thing. So actually, the the, the short version, the short answer to your question is, the the um, the patterns in Teams properties do seem to apply at quite small organization sizes, like. We've seen around about 15, 20 people, it starts to become valuable thinking through where we're going to put these kind of boundaries, where we're going to put these plat- what what is the platform What in terms of cognitive load, in terms of different kind of technology and, and setting things up so that we don't, you don't want to make decisions too early because you might not have enough information, but at the same time, if you think that you don't have these kind of problems until you're, like, 250 people, then you're mistaken. Mm. Like, the, these the, these kind of challenges around cognitive load and flow and uh, Conway's Law definitely start to kick in probably much sooner
1: than most organisations. And that's irrespective, then, of, like, the talent hiring, I guess, like, the, pro- the process to kind of come in and, like, the cultural values and, like, what you're hiring for. And-
0: you can probably hire for people who are... In fact, this is really interesting, actually, we've seen, so we've got, we've just started using a new kind of so-called social listening tool, which, which goes out there and kind of searches for, in this case, searches for um, new material posts and articles and mentions and things that are mentioned in team topologies, as you'd expect. And we're increasingly seeing quite large firms, banks, insurers, um, automobile manufacturers, uh, and so on. Uh, including the phrase "teams' bodies" in their job specifications or in RFPs, so in 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 re- requests for for, um, for proposals from consultancies, saying so basically, like some degree of teams' bodies awareness and knowledge, particularly in terms of enabling teams, is now starting to creep in as a as a, as a requirement. Um, so it depends who, you know, you can probably hire for people who get this stuff already. Mm. And so then you'll be able to make more progress. If you like, you have to be able to have better conversations. But ultimately, you you might have bought yourself more more runway, more time. Um, if, you, if you're if you not, if you don't have a load of legacy technologies, you've bought yourself a bit more time. And so on and so on. If you bought people who are happy to do a bit of Java, a bit of Python, a bit of Go, something else, they don't see themselves as a Java developer or a .NET developer, you've bought yourself a bit more uh, kind of, flexibility and that kind of thing so yes you can hire for you can hire for a better fit in this kind of in this kind of world um but you're still constrained by it, it, kind of in a nice way really you, st- you still got constraints in terms of cognitive load and the amount of stuff the size of a of a service that a team can actually seriously look after properly look after in in a 24 7 sense and, st- and and be able to have all that domain context around it and deal with all of the deployment stuff and the security stuff and so on and so on. Even if they're using a platform, they still have to be in, aware enough of all of these, how it all fits together, and, and, and where the where the where the dragons are, if you mm. like, on the on the map. So yes, hiring helps for sure, but you but you you still got the same challenges ultimately. It's just that you might not have to you might not hit the the real challenges quite so soon uh, as if you've got a different kind of set of people. But I think the, I, th- I think you're right. I think that there's. Teen board is the book is, is uh, and the whole approach is it's um, is, is sort of difficult to pigeonhole. It's not a technology book, it's not a business book. It, it's, and it's not a, it's not an HR human resources book it's a combination of all of these things and more because it's not an architecture book, but it deals with architecture and so on. It includes elements of all these things because that's the nature of the problem. Mm-hmm. That is, that's what we do when we build modern business software systems cool right if you're building if you're writing software for a raspberry pi to go into like some smart doorbell or something like that or some kind of um, meteorological station or agricultural uh, soil monitor thing fine like it's it's a piece of software it sits there it does its thing and reports data back or whatever so it's relatively technology uh, centric but when we're talking about business software systems that are encoding you know um, decision making workflows uh, allowing um, uh, customers access to, to to you know upload a document or uh, start a workflow or something, then these the, the nature of the problem in that kind of space, which is arguably the, the majority of software development these days is is in that kind of that kind of business enabling space. Then the nature of of what we need to do is not just technology by any stretch of the imagination. Technology is a part of it. But we have to think about like the relationship between the domains we're working in we have to think about the relationship between the different teams working together like do they understand mm-hmm. they have the same understanding are there different like subdomains and, and whatnot um, how are we going to respond to failure all of the stuff we've learned about devops and sre and, and so on and so on platform engineering over the last like 15 20 years like what's our organizational response to that have we got the right culture to enable a sensible response to that, and to be able to learn quickly from something that's gone wrong in production, or are we going to clamp down on it and then make people leave and, and make people feel 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 fearful, mm. and so on and so on? This stuff is not it's not a technology problem. Technology is a part of it, but it's interwoven with a whole load of other dimensions. Which is probably why it was did so well. I guess I, I'd like to think so. I'd like to think so. And and I think some of the ideas are are, are useful. The um, <laughs> challenge is that. Quite a few people don't bother reading to the end of the book. They read like the first section or the first few chapters and go, Yeah, I get it, this is fine. And then we have to go, look, if you'd read like the second half of the book, or certainly the last part, you'd realise that your your conception of what we're talking about is like is is just way too basic, it's way off the mark. Mm. Um so to to the extent that now I actually recommend that people recommend that people start at the back of the book and almost read the book backwards. <laughs> um Maybe we should have written it in, 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 that, that way, in a around, different order. Um, we, we literally had like a CEO who'd read, he claimed to have read the book. This is what one customer a couple of years ago. Claimed to have read the book and, he, and, and it, we're in the middle of a workshop and genuinely he thought that these changes to teams and team boundaries for flow and all this stuff, he thought it would take maybe three weeks. And this is an organization of many hundreds of people with like, I don't know what it was, billions of revenue whatever. Certainly, hundreds of millions of revenue for sure, probably billions. Um, I'm going to, have to say, oh, right. So this is—it's going to take a bit more than three weeks. This is this is a long-term, you know, a, a long-term endeavor here, because effectively you're rewiring your business. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's interesting, and the, the, there's definitely work to do on that aspect, which is like, well, how long does all of this change take? what are the steps that you might expect us to take because people read the book and they go wow this sounds amazing and then possibly have yeah too 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 low an expectation or too modest an expectation of what the, what the implications really are mm-hmm. like we maybe didn't spell out the implications
1: to be fair though i, I, I was talking about this um to, to others i've read like loads of books and listened to loads of podcasts and when i'm when i'm doing it um I don't know why maybe it's like a complete naivety, but every time I'm listening and it makes loads of sense, I think like I've obviously learned quite a lot. And I'm like, wow, that's great. So interesting that, however, what I haven't done is changed my habit. So for some unknown reason, I think I've acquired knowledge, but changed nothing, if that makes sense. And somehow believe that because I acquired the knowledge that somehow I'm gonna like change because I acquired the knowledge, but actually I'm habitual. So, until my habits change in relation to the things i've learned i've kind of then learned still the hard way if that makes sense so then i still make the mistakes even though they were already well documented by other people and then i'm like yeah that was kind of textbook i mean literally it was textbook because it wasn't a book and i still made the mistake despite Mm -hmm. kind of like reading it um so it is quite hard to like think that just because mm-hmm. you've read something suddenly you've also changed or your behavior's changed or your habits have changed, and that does take time and um it's something I've kind of clocked where after i've failed, I then realized it was already documented, and I'm like, yeah, I suppose that shouldn't have technically happened considering I did read that stuff, so it is definitely not going to be fast for mm. people
0: that's actually so i I agree with you, and that actually ends up being um uh, a, a business opportunity for us because what we started to do is to offer. Uh, so we, we do training. We, we've got on on demand video training, uh, fairly standard stuff, and it's you know it, it has a value. Uh, it, it's got a, a certain amount of impact. It's kind of like a step off the floor, if you like, a step up, but not not many many steps. It doesn't take you to the top of the top of the top of the stairs, top of the ladder. Um, but but yeah, hundreds of people potentially in the organisation can take that kind of training. Um, uh, asynchronously and eventually they're, they're, they've all watched something at the very least um, but uh, and we also did like group learning sessions a smaller session like 15 people sessions and that can act like a catalyst because people see their peers learning things right. and we know from kind of pedagogy and, and, and kind of psychology of learning that actually a lot of learning happens when people see their peers learning mm. rather, than, rather than hearing it from the teacher but we've taken one step further, which is actually to do start offering reflective learning sessions. So let's say people have been on a workshop or an online training course or something, whatever, or they've read a book or they watched a talk or a video, bring people together and help them to reflect on what they've seen, but in a like a semi-guided way. Because then with the embedding, with, with that time for reflection, that's where additional learning happens. Mm-hmm. If you don't do that, then, then you've, the organization has spent. 10,000 on some video trading and basically that just goes down the, down the toilet because people haven't got time to reflect. Learning only happens with a reflection, um, reflection on that, on, on, the, on the original learning and so on and so on. And so this then becomes like this devising, helping organizations to guide people on kind of learning journeys and helping them to start to implement it becomes a key, a key part to make any of this stuff work. Um, And that's what we're, that's what we're, that's what, that's part of the scaling stuff I mentioned before. Continuous delivery as a practice. When was the book published? 2010. What's that? We're now in the middle of 2023, 13 years ago, right? We came across, we're doing some work with a customer in the UK. Uh, They do financial software. The there's someone in the organization in charge of products. And this person had never heard of continuous delivery. I mean, this this is work we were doing earlier this year. So that's thirteen years after the book was published. Never heard of continuous delivery for digital products. I mean, you are thinking, wow, <laughs> that's pretty special. No wonder you know there's, there are problems in the organisation around around um, around product delivery of digital products, right? <laughs> um, but even even more so than that, like the the ideas in, in continuous delivery are. are, are Verging on counterintuitive, like like merge your code into into trunk or main every day. Like people go, "Wow, what's this? What is this voodoo?" I like to have a nice long live branch in in my GitHub repository. Thank you very much. Instead, and even when this, even when the the CD techniques and and trunk based development and so on have been proven effectively proven. Have have been shown to indicate higher, predict higher organizational performance. So, all the accelerate stuff and state of reports, people are still like fingers in their ears. No, 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 that can never work here. So, there's this, like you said before, we're not missing the practices.
1: Yeah.
0: The practices are known, the practices are invented, they're they're effectively as close to proven as we're able to get. Um, But it takes a long time. It's like an oil tanker, like Mm. opinion and ways, existing ways of working and stuff like this. Um, particularly when when things, particularly when things initially sound very different to their expected way of working, and they can't they can't get a handle on how that might be better for that organisation, and it needs a lot of other stuff in place, and it needs a, a rethink, like a refra- mental framing. Mm. Um, like instead of the, the classic one is like instead of having to manage all dependencies, what do we? How do we re re, re reshape the organisation so we don't need to manage dependencies? That kind of thing—it's like <sighs> complete, like mind exploding for, for people when you start talking to them about that. And eventually, some of them get it, but many of them, it's
1: it's it's like you're talking Klingon. <laughs> yeah, it is, it is tough, though. I guess it, you know, from like we're saying, like you can you can be educated, but not implement the education because your habits are a certain way, and you then have to learn almost sometimes trial by fire. Some people learn literally trial by fire, fires in like even though they've seen other people do it they only learn by doing it wrong themselves. And then they're like, oh yeah, okay, now I get it. Like now I've actually experienced it. Now I actually understand it. But, you know, the theory isn't, you know, isn't always totally understandable. But I was gonna ask you about all the, um, what your kind of take is on the, um, cause I know you've done obviously the Dora stuff and um, the DevOps reports and uh, you've been involved in all those things. Mm-hmm. And then the platform engineer, the rise of the platform engineering and, you know, and, and um, What you think all of that means in relation to, you know, I guess the team topology stuff and the way teams operate and what your take on it is as a, as an industry, um, and then also probably from the, from the book.
0: I did my first talk on DevOps in 2010 in Hamburg at DevOps Days Hamburg. That's pretty early on. That was like literally like two weeks after the continuous delivery books was published and blah, blah, blah. Um so I've been involved in this kind of space for what's that now, thirteen thirteen years. Uh DevOps was an is was an amazing kind of movement that really transformed how um kind of, you know, IT software systems were specified and built and run. I mean the the, the value from that movement has just been amazing. But of course, now DevOps means I don't know something like infrastructure automation or like CICD, deployment pipelines, that kind of stuff. And it's it's like the meaning of that word is I was shrunk down to like a really small slice of the of the um, of where the value really is. Okay, fine. So then, what came along? SRE, Site Reliability Engineering from Google. Now that started in two thousand and three, pre-cloud, as a set of principles. Right, you've got to remember that. That was even pre SRE is pre DevOps. SRE comes along some real, but some, with some quite impressive you know um, balancing of, of technology and social contract social dynamics in there really um, in terms of how Google talks about how they do it Um, but then SRE BK has sort of become in some circles kind of like, well, load of really gnarly and awkward stuff around reliability and performance and observability and a few of these other things. Um, and then people are looking for the next shiny thing. That's going to fix all of their problems. Hmm. Because DevOps didn't fix their problems and SOE didn't fix their problems, and maybe platform engineering is going to fix all our problems. Well, if you're thinking like that, then a platform engineering is, isn't going to fix your problems. That's that's, that's that's sad to say. It's not going to do it because you're thinking about it in the wrong way. Um, the organizations that, that 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 found DevOps useful are the ones that change their culture, change their wa- their ways of working, change the way they learn, change the way that uh, decisions are not just not just the way that decisions are made, but where decisions are made. So decisions are pushed down into semi-autonomous units called teams that then can execute with full context. And likewise, the organizations that, that that found SRE really valuable and helped to do it are the organizations that that understood the underlying intention and dynamics around SRE that Google talk about. The, the ones that failed are the ones that created a separate SRE team. And then the SRE team is the one that like runs the services in production on behalf of developers. Well, that's just back to the old DevOps yeah. stuff from like 2008. Like what's the point of that?
1: Yeah, yeah. Definitely.
0: And the same will be true of platform engineering. The, the organizations expect like platform engineering to like somehow magically take away all the hassle from developers. They've got, got it all wrong. And that's why in the Team bodies book, we, we were very careful to talk about platforms in terms of things that improve flow and reduce cognitive load. Mm. They need to be like they need to have like good product management around them. think about developer experience, user experience in general, talk about user needs, actually talk to the development teams and understand what they actually need and try and understand what their current experience is and if it 's not a good experience, then go and fix it and all this kind of stuff which so there'll be loads of organizations that are just rolling out platform engineering and don 't take on board any of that stuff at all and they 're going to fail yeah. And they're going to blame it on platform engineering and then be something else that comes along after that uh we definitely contributed to to the to the the rise of this thing kind of pl- around platform engineering and i think for the organizations that, that that really understand it and really take the time to understand the dynamics around it they're going to they, they're going to succeed they're, they're going to do really really well it's going to really help the organizations that pay lip service to it and just hire a load of platform engineers and expect things magically to work out they're not going to get any value out of it at all yeah because they're not,
1: they not changed fundamentally how the organisation works. It's also one of those spaces, like you know, you, I mean, if you took look at normal product management, and to, and to have product owners, or somebody of which you can steer direction, or domain like um, domain experts, essentially that you can that kind of understand how to solve the problem potentially differently um, because they've been exposed to it, and then to have product managers who are technically enough but also good enough i guess from the um, soft skills perspective um and can like manage in terms of product management properly like ideation of like how the problems can get solved that's quite a lot of niche like niching capability so i think as a as a principle it absolutely makes sense so when i look at platform engineering, like oh you know trying to trying to operationalize some efficiency across the business and not having loads of divergence across the organization makes loads of sense. Consistency kind of makes sense. If you can achieve it, commoditization of things makes sense. If you can achieve it well, and it kind of meets enough of the balance. But I think because it's such a broad space, I do wonder what's going to happen over time where people, like you've just said, people adopt it. Um, they'll try and execute on it. Um, and the execution bit's going to be really hard um because the talent that you might need to execute well on it is finite and also going to be quite hard so it will be quite a tricky thing to probably i imagine a lot of people might end up in a bit of a mess without recognizing that that was going to happen but feel like they did everything correct if you see what i mean they're like but i did all the. Th- i feel like i did all yeah. the things <laughs> that people said i should do but it still for some reason hasn't worked out very well. And now we've got this thing um, in the business that's like not really working um, as well as we thought it might. And,
0: and, and there'll, be, there'll be kind of um, pendulum swings where, where one investment cycle or one, or, or one particular CTO or CEO, they'll invest in that approach. And then someone else will come in and, and look at the costs of, of doing that kind of approach with product managers and platform and, and doing loads of UX and things like this with internal teams. And they go wow this is really crazy just just let's just cut all these costs and then it'll go back to an old style it department where you have to raise a jira ticket or something like this or service now ticket mm. and it'll be back to the bad old days of 2007 again and then that will take you know three four five years in that organization to to clear up the organization will probably fail or get bought by someone else and blah 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 so there's a bit of a cyclic thing there and maybe that sounds really cynical <laughs> um I think I think the what we do have now, obviously, twenty twenty three, is we've got plenty of um experienced digital product managers on the market in general. People experienced with managing digital products at scale for consumers and B two B and B two C audiences. Now all of that, and we've got loads of people who've got good UX. Um, uh, you know, user experience, awareness and developer experience and so on and so on. These skills are already inside these kind of organizations. They're just customer-facing, external customer-facing. So we don't have to look outside the organization to find these skills often. They're already in the organization. We can use that expertise there and bring it inside the organization to focus on this internal platform. It's not even like we've, we've already got... The organizations that are already doing that stuff for their external customers, whoever they are, are already in a, in a position of advantage. Now, if you're not doing any user persona stuff or UX or, or, or proper product management, then you're in a bad place anyway. Mm-hmm. So you need to fix that. Whatever happens, but it's not like we're having to fish fish around in the dark for this stuff. Like you've got people in the organization who literally know about user experience and developer experience and prod, product roadmaps and life cycles and api management and all of this stuff because you're doing it already externally do you think that do you think you can do that
1: though do you think that's true do you think do you think a product manager um with quite a complex domain um can just apply product management skills and this is where i'm going to sound cynical so i need to be kind of ca- caveat because i'm sure people can't do it but it's 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 quite hard. It's quite a hard thing to then be able to, cause I guess, cause you've got the difference between like doing user research and speaking to users, which is one piece. Um, and then hearing like what people are struggling with and where the time's going and what they're frustrated by, but then taking that and coming up with like ideating on a solution and then also prioritizing like how to roadmap those things, you know, as kind of feature sets, you know to say right okay we've got these like epics and these are the epics of the problems and then we're gonna this is because how it gets solved in the end is the bit that's got to be valuable outside of like knowing what needs to be solved and that takes a certain yeah. level of creativity potentially and and research and mm-hmm. kind of understanding by the team um mm-hmm. which is the hard bit as well and then that's like you know it's a, that's like a real good problem like a good team that can kind of function well on like Mm. figuring it all out well and coming up with ideas under the research and then testing them Mm -hmm. out and then seeing they've got value. Mm -hmm. And, um, Mm -hmm. so I don't know, like that as an internal thing, whilst you're in the way, I suppose, of the delivery of also things that are like that, that are the business like financial driven services is quite a complex like I still think it's right because I've done it myself, so I don't you know it's kind of weird because I'm kind of, but I still think it's quite a hard thing because the difference maybe between you as a business service and you as an internal product means there's demand hitting you that is impeding potentially the business services at a level of scale because you're basically the conduit that a service in isolation wouldn't have. If you see what I mean.
0: like Ultimately, the, the business services should be run as a, an internal product. I mean, that's, that's, that's the way to make it scale. That's how Amazon yeah. Web Services run it. And, and they've, they've not had any problem scaling. In fact, we know that they when they add a new person, they get more than one person's worth of extra activity out of them because of their, scaling, mm-hmm. their, their power scaling laws. They, they, they get a greater than 1, 1x scaling for, for new people, whereas most organizations get something like 0.85. There's a great book by Jeffrey West called Scale, it talks about all of this kind of stuff like what how does scaling work and what kind of things you need to do to make scaling uh, super linear or or, or less than linear and all this kind of stuff and amazon have have got that um, kind of mad they they worked it out a long time ago and a lot of that stuff is around clear interfaces and um and uh, the right kind of abstractions at the right point and refusing to allow coupling Yeah absolutely refusing to allow certain kinds of internal coupling, which most organizations don't think about a lot of the stuff we're doing now comes out of the team's body book is around hidden coupling. I mean, there's nothing new. Coupling has been a thing in the software, you know, particularly in, in software research since when 1950s, mm. 60s, 60s, probably like it's, we're not saying it's new. It's just that we've thankfully been able to shine a light on it again. Um, as a, as a thing that he's addressing. Um, <clears throat> so I'm, I'm not saying that the internal, I'm not saying product management for internal platforms is easy. What I'm saying is that we don't have to look far to find people who can help us, because those people are literally already inside the yeah, most of these organizations. Um, and given that most organizations are starting from such a low baseline around kind of product thinking in the, in the platform type space, whether it's a data platform or a design platform or an infrastructure platform or whatever. We're starting from a, such a low baseline that, to be honest, even if we do, just just do a quick NPS survey, like quick quick developer survey, and we get like some rough one to five Likert scale answers back, we're doing pretty well. Yeah. Like we the the, the 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 ability to make some improvements in this space is it, it's low hanging fruit. To be able to do it really really well, yeah, I mean, but doing product management really really well is is hard anyway. Yeah, you know? so I, I don't think it's fundamentally different. I think it's the same problem. It's, it's the same kind of fractal we've zoomed in a bit more in, in, internally. And it's the same set of dynamics. The, the stuff that's obviously different is you don't get millions of users. You can't do those kind of AB experiments or, or, or multivariate experiments or whatever, uh, where you've got millions of users and therefore like high statistical, um, um, confidence. You have to use techniques that are more qualitative as in surveys and talking to individuals one-to-one and stuff like that. Um, but taking on some of that discipline around, well, let's let's treat the platform as if it's optional. Let's treat the platform as if these development teams have the choice to come to us and use it or not. It just sets up a, such a better dynamic inside the organization. Mm. Like we can treat each other as, as equals and have a proper conversation rather than IT saying, developers, you've got to use this system. You've got to use it otherwise we're not letting you deploy it. Well, really, is that a great starting point for like working together? No and so on, a lot of these other dynamics historically that have been really, really unhelpful. Um, so using this kind of <coughs> sort of treating up the internal dynamics a bit like a, an external market dynamic without being silly, like we're not going to start charging internal teams for using our, our API on a request by request basis. That's, that feels a bit, probably a bit silly mm-hmm. for most organizations but so, like taking—I don't know what it is—like taking eighty percent of the kind of that the kind of external market dynamics, as if it were an external product, external company, and bringing that into our internal platform. Using a lot of that discipline, and then filling in the blanks with actual conversations where we just go and talk to someone, yeah. like just go and have a coffee with someone and ask them what they what they need. That kind of thing. Um, so it, it's it's not exactly the same, but I think we can. I think we can um, bring in a lot of value from people with existing product management, kind of a, a UX and, and, and de- uh, developer
1: experience um,
0: focus and get a, a, a huge chunk of the way to, to
1: to what good looks like. Did did you hear, did you do anything, have you seen anything with the space um, element? Um, I only came across it, literally, I don't know a huge amount. I literally go across it today. Somebody kind of mentioned to me passing this productivity, development. Productivity. It looks really interesting.
0: Yeah. This is the stuff from Nicole and yeah. her and her crew, isn't it? Yeah, I I've not really dived down into it to be honest, um, around developer productivity. But um if if it if it's anything which which makes developer productivity or, or the discussion around it um better than what McKinsey did the other week oh, I don't with know. their report on developer productivity, which was that. absolutely mad, completely mad. Like like it basically said you need to measure how many lines of code your developer is, is coding out every day. I was like, Are you serious? Like this this is <laughs> it was always like a joke. People, lots of people, thought it was a joke. Wow. Um, apparently, it was serious. McKinsey are touting that round to boardrooms around around the world as if it's a thing. Like, get your developers coding more. Really? Wow. Are you sure? <laughs> it's wow! That
1: is bad. I thought people use that as an example of what it isn't, isn't it? Like, I'm sure. Exactly. I'm, I'm sure that actually yeah. has come up in you know in other things about what what you wouldn't measure um, is. That was kind of funny. A little bit ironic, I guess. Like an ironic um, white paper or something.
0: Maybe it was that. Let's hope it was
1: So anyway, I I know it's kind of late, obviously, as well, where you are. um, So I won't take too much of your time. That's
0: all right. I can talk all day, as you can probably tell. Yeah, no,
1: it is. It's really, really good. And I've kind of like, it's great having you on. Are you ever back um, down this way? Not
0: in London very often. Um, I'm actually in London later in September. Yeah. Are you
1: going to be travelling around then, do you think? More, or do you think you are trying
0: to uh, a little, little bit more, a little bit more. Um, so we're just trying to work out exactly how that works, and it's quite an interesting, it's quite an interesting problem as well, because I don't want to start uh, incurring a huge carbon mm. like CO two budget for flying around, but at the same time, meeting someone face to face is obviously one of the best ways of building trust, and a big chunk of the stuff in the team. to book is about building, like thinking about where trust boundaries live all the Dunbar's number stuff, because then with high trust, we can get high performing team with a high performing team. The team members trust each other to do the right thing in the right context. And so we can go much more quickly and blah, 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 blah. So a lot of stuff I'm thinking about is applying team topologies to not just my businesses as operational kind of units or actually groups of companies in, in, in one case, but also to uh, a network. So we've got a network of partners and uh enthusiasts we call them advocates uh so applying it to a, a kind of worldwide network of people and organizations who are who have an interest in in interesting team topologies and fast flow but interested ultimately in, in in making ultimately making the world a better place for people who are working in in these industries um that's our mission is around is around making things more like humane and um more effective um and thinking through like how that works where where do the trust boundaries sit in inside a network um so that's like it's my kind of nerdy um kind of interest in 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 this stuff here but it's it's, it's just amazing to be able to apply teams bodies in these multiple different contexts and stretch the stretch the um the principles a bit and see see where see where the edges of the the ideas are um but so far it's proved proven really useful to to think about how to organize for our tool organize not just for fast flow but for for distributed decision making mm. um because we've got people across pretty much every time zone basically now almost every almost every time zone um and just where we need to move really quickly move really quickly on things because the is there and the can the decisions can't come through to a single uh, a single person or a single small group all the time which is true of any organisation yeah. right but we're hitting these challenges now at a much smaller size, much smaller, let's say employee size or FTE size than, than many organizations might do. Cause, uh, because of the, because of the interest in the team's bodies book and, and in fast flow in general, we're having to hit some interesting, uh, sort of scaling and decision-making and, and operating model. Um, we're having to deal with these, these kind of aspects sort of now, even though we're. You know, let's say less than fifteen people yeah. uh, involved, because of because of what's kind of what's happening in the kind of wider network. So yeah, it's it's great to have the the teacher bodies book because we just dip in there and use the ideas to help us work out how to how to navigate that kind of those those kind of
1: decisions. Is that um, is that is it because it's your remote? Is that what the the, the challenge is, or is it because you're dispersed, for different time zones? Because they're quite I don't know if they're similar ish. Things, whether it's the nature of just not being together, and you can't like just go over to someone's desk um, or side chat.
0: It's a, it's a really good question um, because, the, the, because of course, so we, we did a we did a second we did a, a second book to Team Teams Bodies called Remote Team Interactions Workbook, um, which is like a, a thin a thin volume which came out in early twenty twenty two. It's basically like an appendix to the main Teams Bodies book where we wrote it in the middle of lockdown and and all the COVID stuff, and so everyone's now hybrid hybrid every organization has now got some people working from home yeah. some days it's just the new normal the new normal is you can never guarantee that you'll be be able to just walk up to someone like even if you're in the same city you might be in two different office buildings even even if you're in the same office building you're on two different floors and one of you is, is on a floor which the other person can't access because it's a higher security level or whatever yeah. so you're communicating through video call slack my god teams if you're if you're very unlucky um or something like that. Um, and so that, that's the new normal. And we've been, we've been running on Slack. Uh, well, we were, used Skype initially, but then we've been running with Slack for ages, like eight years or something. You're not, you're not trying to replicate in-person conversation. You're actually, I think for me, looking to use in-person conversation in a very specific way, which is to build the trust, which then uh, allows you to operate in a hybrid or a fully remote way for, for extended periods of time. Mm.
1: Interesting.
0: That's what it feels like to me. Um, so that when you get together, you might not do any work as such. You might just like have a whiteboard session and throw some ideas around. You might have some lunch, you might just shoot the breeze or whatever. The point there is you're, 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 we're not talking about trust building exercise. We're not talking about that nonsense. Right. But, but the thing, things that end up mean that you get to know someone and, and how they tick so that when you're, when you're remote that, you know, that someone's gonna going to, um make decisions in the best interests of the people who are involved in, in that particular area mm. um but yeah it's, it's interesting to think through like all of these dynamics and uh, that that's interested me for ages like all, all of that all of that kind of stuff the relationship between different tools ways of working um different kind of messaging and it, and it coming from a software background you thinking about apis application programming interface we, we get it right like in terms of building software yeah. But that is a very weird way of thinking for lots of people. The idea of specifying how to communicate and only being able to communicate through a particular w- well-formed protocol. Some people can't do it at all. <laughs> they, they want to get on the, on the telephone and have like a, an arbitrary call, like a random call with someone else and just discuss it. And, and the value of locking things down into a well-formed shape some people don't get at all and obviously coming from software we get it yeah. that's our kind of go-to go-to way of thinking about it and that's obviously what helps to, things to scale so we're, we're, we're really trying to live this stuff and, and think through the implications on a day-by-day basis and and um, some of the future stuff that comes out of the team's bodies and the kind of conflicts sort of space will almost certainly be around this around kind of organizational operating models and scaling and ways of working together at multiple different levels of the organization, stuff like this. I don't know yet, but it's, this is the kind of stuff we're working We're We're living every day and we're working on it with our customers. And for me, it's, 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 it's super interesting. It really is. Yeah. Like at the intersection of lots of different things.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, one, one is I actually find it intriguing myself too, though the COVID thing and the digital thing, um, even, even being an ex, you know, uh, kind of programmer and worked in the industry, I really do like being around people. So it's very difficult. I find it really difficult, because it's not necessarily I think you're spot on when you were saying, when people come together, you're not actually there to try and be productive on those days when it's hybrid, right? Because you're not you're not together very often. So you are like whiteboarding or doing the softer stuff. But the dynamic of the team does alter when they've been around each other because they've kind of behaviorally understood one another differently than like, which you can't quite, I mean, maybe you can do it sometimes, but it's really, it's like much harder to get to know somebody digitally remotely. It takes a lot more effort and you don't see, you know, when the camera's off and someone's like walked off and did a thing, you obviously don't get to see them outside of the conversation or their nuances or their body language as much. And you definitely do notice, and it is maybe is trust in the end but it's like a comfortability um mm. with one mm-hmm. another in the team when they're then remote and it does transfer and there's a bit more of a relaxed you know kind of element or at least more collaborative because some people mm. are less collaborative sometimes by accident digitally because it's harder um yep. to kind of collaborate yep. you know so
0: and i think it has implication for it's got implications for scaling because it kind of then implies well if you're going to have people in the same team, you probably need to be able to those people to meet fairly easily on a reasonably regular basis, like every six months or something mm. like that, so that it can maintain that sense of trust. And if the team sort of has changed a bit, you need to get those people together again to, to sort of to reform that trust and, and to, to, to shape the dynamic. But then potentially those folks can run for, I don't know, three months or even maybe even longer, depending on, on, on what else, what, what the other culture is like in the organization remotely um, or, or hybrid or what have you. Um, but, but that it feels like that trustees renewing. I mean, this is not new, right? Mm-hmm. This, the, 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 these these kind of social and group dynamics have, have been known for a very long time. But um, it's worth reminding ourselves, I think, of, of what that looks like. But if you talk about scaling an organisation, <clears throat> even if the vast majority of work happens, let's say, online, which you can do these days, yeah. every organisation has now got every organisation, many, many, many organisations now have got have got video conferencing, video call tools, and so on, um, to make this stuff, you know possible so a lot of stuff can be done online but then which bits actually do you deliberately want to put in person mm-hmm. in order to build that trust in order to, to to raid to to um to demonstrate certain things so you might be able to get i don't know 50 60 percent of the way there say so even 70 80 percent of the way there with with digital uh, online approaches but then there's a chunk which is you know somewhere between 10 and 50 percent where where which needs in person like you know bodies in the same room kind of approach at some point so it's really interesting to think through that dynamic and one of the implications of that for scaling organizations and things um um because 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 having all the bodies in say san francisco it's probably not needed yeah that 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 kind of model of of the the kind of pre pre pre-pandemic sort of um uh, silicon valley stuff is probably not needed but but neither is it everyone is fully remote all the time that's also probably not actually the most effective way of doing it and guess what there's a dynamic in there and it's, it's not just like it's a halfway house it's, it's a different thing it's about a dynamic around it yeah you can have people living in the middle of nowhere but the point is that we're occasionally going to come together there's, there's a there's a there's a yeah like a dynamic aspect to it we're going to come together deliberately quite quite deliberately and use maybe some techniques from let's say liberating structures or some other kind of group kind of um learning and 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 awareness techniques deliberately to do that in a relatively short space of time um to minimize hotel and travel costs and all the rest of it yeah and and and, and because people have got home care responsibilities and and uh, and kids and whatever else uh, they can't be there for like two weeks uh where we slowly get to know each other it's you've got two days and that's it so what you're going to do in that space so that all that kind of stuff is is actually quite interesting as well from like a, the health of the organization, the health of the individuals, health of teams, all of that dynamic is is interesting to start to see emerge as well. Yeah. So we're, we're living it and we're th- uh, helping our customers kind of work through some of those things too.
1: Yeah, it's super interesting. You'll, you'll have to, um, I mean, I know you're a busy guy, but you'll have to come back on and keep giving it, give it an update. It'd be brilliant to kind of get you back and also...
0: Yeah, sure. Yeah, kind
1: yeah. of learn what you're doing. Like, it's just good to kind of get a sense of like what you're discovering and things you're trying. And we also have it like, even though we're a bit, we're similar in that terms, you're practicing what you preach, cause you've also got to run, you know, you've got people in your business and they need to operate. So, you know, it is like you firsthand see things, um, and, like what's working and what hasn't, um, even for yourselves, which is the bit like, even what you're saying, it's the bit that helps you reflect on how, complicated the dynamics of it all are like how grey it can be so it's not like it's like oh just do a you'll be fine um you're done it's success um so it is really interesting yeah. um but anyway yeah. thanks a lot for coming on it's been great and then if you're in london you know, and you've got time give us a shout and we'll do a, definitely do a beer or no something thing, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you can That'll see lewis that'd be great as well you can see lewis again and yeah, so he's yeah. up to it
0: that'd be great